If you have your Bibles, we're in Isaiah 37 this evening. Coming up to Isaiah 39, if you need a Bible, make friends with Jim. We're coming up to Isaiah 39, and at the end of Isaiah 39, we end not only this ninth section of the book of Isaiah, this history section, this section written in prose rather than poetry, um, 36, 37, 38, 39. We also end the first major division in Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39 are sometimes called the Assyrian section of Isaiah because the focus is primarily on what we're reading about here, the impending Assyrian invasion, the invasion that, that God turns back. And that's going to be in our text this evening. The second section begins in chapter 40, and that's sometimes referred to as the Babylonian section of Isaiah because it's written primarily to Israel, Judah in exile under Babylon. Different substance, focus, different style and tone, which has given rise over the years to some people speculating, well, maybe that second half of Isaiah was written by somebody different altogether. You might have heard of this, the Deutero-Isaiah theory. And of course, once somebody says that, somebody has to add to it and and embellish it. And I think that there are people who think that there are now five Isaiahs who, who have written the various, the various parts of it. Jesus himself puts the lie to the whole thing. You might know this, but John chapter 12, you can, you can turn there or, or you can just listen along. But in John chapter 12, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, not once, but twice. John 12, starting in verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, he, Jesus, before the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You probably recognize that that's the beginning of Isaiah 53. So that would be in that second section the the new the uh, the the Babylonian section. Some people call it the New Testament section, because chapters one through thirty nine kind of have a theme and a rhythm. And hey, thirty nine chapters in the Old Testament, and then the remaining twenty seven chapters have a theme and a rhythm. Hey, twenty seven chapters in the New Testament. Or, I'm sorry, twenty seven books in twenty seven books in the old, twenty seven books in the new. Here's the thing: is 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 we we can we can make too much of that. Um, the chapter divisions in Isaiah, those were added hundreds of years after they were written, hundreds of years after the death of Christ. So the fact that it's 39 chapters lining up to 39 books and 27 chapters lining up to 27 books, it, I, I think that's making much out of little. But getting back to what we're talking about, Jesus in John 37, Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Then Isaiah said again. In some translations, then that same Isaiah and that second quote you probably recognize is from Isaiah 6. It's from Isaiah standing in the presence of the throne of God. The point being is that Jesus himself authenticates Isaiah writing both halves of the book. It's interesting, isn't it? How often, how consistently the Holy Spirit anticipates the things that men will come up with to disagree about. The, 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 the ways that man will undermine God's word. And so often the Holy Spirit has anticipated that and already answered it in his word. This is just one example. We're going to talk more about the style and the substance and the shift in tone when we cross over to chapter 40, when we cross over to chapter 40. But that's not going to be for a little while. 
I mentioned a few weeks ago that there was a possibility that we were going to press hold on our study through Isaiah for the summer. And in fact, after praying and, and, and consulting with, with, with some of the brothers in leadership, that's what we're going to do. We'll get through Isaiah 39, it's a logical break point. And then I'm gonna hand the reins over to Rob, who is gonna take us through a two-month study this summer through the book of 1 Peter, which will give Rob a chance to, to get back teaching again. He hasn't done much of that since he handed Children's Church off to Dakota. And uh, quite honestly, it's going to give me an opportunity to get on top of some of the health stuff that I've been contending with uh, ever since COVID. So that's coming up in a few weeks. Um, but for tonight, Isaiah 37. And we left off last week with the showdown at the aqueduct. The Assyrian army had stormed south. They pushed aside the Egyptian army. They defeated some 46 fortified cities as, as they traversed Judah. And, and as, uh, as we picked up the story in Isaiah 36, the Assyrian army was camped 32 or so miles southwest of Jerusalem outside the city of Lachish, which they thought was the last fortified city standing between them and Jerusalem. And at that point, Sennacherib sends an emissary. He sends the Rabshakeh, prime minister, ambassador, cupbearer, something along those lines. He sends an emissary to speak to Hezekiah's representatives to basically demand Jerusalem's surrender. And remember last week, he said, you have no army, you have no allies, and God isn't going to save you. So why don't you open the gates and, 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 and have a little dignity? Spare yourselves a long, agonizing siege. Why don't we skip to the inevitable defeat that we all know is coming? And at the end of chapter 36 last week, Hezekiah's reps, they listened. They didn't respond, verse 21, because Hezekiah told them not to. The king said, don't answer them. Just listen and report back. So at the end of the chapter, that's what they were doing. Beginning chapter 37, and so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, when he heard the report from, about how the conversation went at the aqueduct. He tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of... I swear I'm reading just what it says here. <laughs> covered himself... Okay, so it's a miracle. We still have power. <laughs> um, and went into the house of the Lord sackcloth, tearing his clothes, we recognize those as, as signs, as symbols of mourning. Some people will say, oh, that's, that's an indication of repentance. Maybe not necessarily. In Jewish culture, that was simply a sign things are really bad and they're about to get worse. But he's going into the house of the Lord. So things might be about to get better because we haven't seen Hezekiah do that yet. Verse 2, then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shibna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, also covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. So this is looking encouraging. This is looking like repentance. Repentance is turning back. What are they turning back from? Hezekiah is turning back from the misguided foreign policy that he'd been pursuing, the, the Egypt policy. If we have strong enough allies, we can, we can push back Assyria ourselves and we don't have to simply depend on God. That had been, I remember, Isaiah's recommendation, Isaiah's counsel all along. Trust in God. God's asking you to trust him. God is saying, don't trust in horses. Don't trust in, in military. Don't trust in gold. Don't trust in allies. Trust in me. Hezekiah walked right up to the, to the brink of being willing to do that, and then they said, no, 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 no. The offer from Egypt is too good. I'm, I, we're we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get allies from Egypt. Egypt has fled, and he's finally ready to do what he should have done in the first place. Go to Isaiah and say, okay, how do we get back on track with God? And they said to him, Hezekiah's representative said to him, this, uh, this is what Hezekiah wants you to know, Isaiah. This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. 
For the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. It's interesting language. It's language that evokes some of the apocalyptic chapters of prophecy. Think about Zephaniah chapter 1, the, the, the day of darkness and distress and thick darkness. So it's, it's apocalyptic sort of language. It's time to deliver the baby, but there's no strength. What happens when it's time to deliver, but mom doesn't have strength? Very often, especially in Isaiah's time, mom dies. That actually, that, that was the situation with my daughter's birth 20 years ago is, is the doctor came in and, and said to my wife, you're exhausted, you have no more strength to push, but she's not coming. Um, we live in a day and a time where cesarean sections are a possibility. Um, and so, praise God, the, the outcome was, was good. But that's the idiom going on here. It's time for the delivery and, and you don't have the strength to deliver yourself. It's time for the delivery, but there's no deliverer. So Hezekiah's emissaries go to Isaiah, and their, their message, quite simply, is help. We're at the end of ourselves. Help. Verse 4, it may be, they say to Isaiah, that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, who his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. The most interesting word, and it appears twice in that verse, your. They're Jewish. They're, they're of Judah. Why are they saying, Isaiah, pray to your God? Because they feel like they forfeited the right to stand before him. They know they've disobeyed him. They rejected his counsel. Isaiah, we're coming to you, not just because you're a prophet, but because you're the one who's been in a right relationship with God this whole time. While we've been in rebellion, you and God have been tight. You've been in koinonia. You've been in communion. God will listen to you now. So will you intercede? Will you ask him? Not because we deserve it. We know that we don't. But because, do you hear what he's saying? The Rabshakeh, do you hear what the Assyrians are saying about you? God, will you intercede for the sake of your name? Will you pray a prayer like Moses prayed and say, God, we don't deserve this, but will you do it so that no one thinks that you're weak, so that everyone sees that you're mighty? Will you do it for the glory of your name? And I'm sure at that point they held their breath. Verse 5 so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and that's what they had to say. And then they waited. Now, starting in verse 6, we've got Isaiah's response, and it comes in two parts. Isaiah said to them, here's the first thing, Thus shall you say to your master, bring this message to Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, this is God to you, Hezekiah, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? If it doesn't, it should. That's right out of Isaiah 7. That was the conversation that Isaiah had with Hezekiah's dad. That was the conversation that Isaiah, the counsel that Hezekiah gave Amos. Uh, chapter 7, verse 3 Take heed and be quiet, do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Razan and Syria, the son of Ramalia. Uh, verse, verse 7, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Same exact counsel. Don't worry, God says, I've got this. Don't sweat it, I will deal with them, those that oppose you, those that oppose me. Verse 6, message part 1, Hezekiah, don't be afraid. Verse 7, here's how I'm going to deal. Verse 7, surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. He'll go back to Nineveh and I'll cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. The word spirit there is ruach. It's, uh, a, a, in Hebrew, a spirit of compulsion. We, we see it show up as, as God giving people over to sin. We see it showing up as God 
putting people to sleep, sending a deep sleep upon them. In this case, it's a compulsion back to Nineveh, back to the, the capital of Assyria, never to return. But, but understand, step back for a moment, Sennacherib doesn't know this. This is God speaking to Isaiah, speaking to Hezekiah's lieutenants who are going to bring the message to Hezekiah. Sennacherib doesn't know this, obviously. So verse 8, while the conversation is going on in Judah, the Rabshakeh goes back to report to Sennacherib. Hezekiah's guys have gone out, they've reported to Hezekiah. Now Sennacherib's guy is reporting back to him. Verse 8, the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. For he had heard, the Rabshakeh had heard that Sennacherib had departed from Lachish. When he left Lachish, 32 miles or so southwest of Jerusalem, it, it, it seemed to everyone that that would be the last obstacle standing in the way of the Assyrian army, the last, the last thing standing between them and Jerusalem. But a little bit of a surprise, the Egyptian army rallied to everybody's shock. They had retreated previously, but here they are at Libna, showing up, putting up a fight. They're back into the, into the battle. It says, uh, verse 9, the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, but remember Ethiopia and, and Egypt were united as one dynasty at this point. So, so Sennacherib, his road to Judah just got, uh, to Jerusalem rather, just got a little bit more complicated. So rather than simply marching on Jerusalem as, as he was expecting to, he's going to have to fight his way there a little bit. So given this, this development, this change in circumstance, he somewhat uncharacteristically, remember Sennacherib is a ruthless guy, somewhat uncharacteristically gives Hezekiah another chance to surrender. Verse 9 uh, the king heard concerning uh, Tirkaka, king of Ethiopia, has come to make war with you. Sennacherib heard that. So we went, he heard it. He sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Give him a message for me. Tell him, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look. You've heard what the king of Assyria has done to all lands by utterly destroying them. Shall you be delivered? Do you really think you're going to be any different than all of the other lands that we've already conquered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those who my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rasif and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of uh, Sepharavim, Hena, Iva? He's, he's listing conquests that, that he made, that Sargon made. Why are you going to be any different? Why is your God different than their gods? He obviously is, is, is saying he, it's, it's not going to be. So again, have a little dignity, surrender, surrender now. My ambassador already asked you, on what basis could you possibly resist? Army? No. Allies? No. God? Come on, be serious. They all said, our gods are going to protect us. They all fell. You will not be different. You won't be different. Your city won't be different because your God is not different. This is Sennacherib's letter to Hezekiah. Starting in verse 14, we've got Hezekiah's answer. Verse 14, his, his response rather. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. What does he do next? He went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah is putting together a nice winning streak here. This is a different Hezekiah than we've seen in a minute. He's going to the Lord, even before he goes to Isaiah, even before he gathers his counselors. What do you think? What do you think? Have you seen anything like this? What does your experience tell you? He goes to God first. There's a lesson there for us. Oftentimes we get this backward. We're in a situation, we're in a predicament, we have a choice to make, and, and, and we go to our friends, we go to our family, and we say, should I do this or this? Should I do this or that? What do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? Have you ever done anything like this? What did you do when you were in this situation? And then we gather up all of those options, and we bring them before the Lord and say, God, 
here, here's, here's, here's all the options I came up with. Pick one. A lot of times we bring before God, well, here's A, B, or C, Lord. What should I do? And God is thinking to himself, I really like you, but that's not the question you asked. You said A, B, or C. Reminds us of, of, of Joshua encounters the angel of the Lord. We know him by another name. We know him as Jesus. He encounters the, the angel of the Lord. Are you for us or against us? And Jesus says, no. <laughs> That's not the right question. Same kind of thing. Hezekiah gets it right. He doesn't gather a bunch of, a, a bunch of options. Should we go with plan A, plan B? He says, God, <laughs> this is what I'm facing. What do I do here? Verse 15, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, your God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. This is a good start. He's praying and he's declaring the one he's praying to. He's beginning his prayer the way, the, the way that we do, the way that Jesus taught us, with adoration. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 16. Uh, verse 17, rather. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Did you hear what he's saying about you, Lord? Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Because it's like playing rock, rock paper, scissors. Wood versus man. Man wins. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Hey, there's a worship song in there somewhere. Sennacherib asked a question. What makes you different, Hezekiah? What makes Jerusalem different? What makes your God different? And in praying, Hezekiah is answering that question. Not to Sennacherib, but to God. He's saying, God, you are different. And this is going to have a different outcome because you're different. He's praying to God on the basis of who God is. He's praying to God on the basis of that difference. You're God over the angels, he says, verse 16. You're God over your, your people, your chosen people, Israel. You're a mighty God. You're a relational God. You're God over creation. You're creator God. Sennacherib says that you're not different, but you couldn't be less the same. And here's his prayer. Show the world you're different, that the nations would see, that the nations would know, that the nations would bow down. It's a good prayer. Adoration. Declaration. God, you are God who is able. You're God who is who is mighty and powerful. You care about your people. You're jealous for your name. He's praying in God's name. We pray in Jesus' name. Same idea. What do we mean when we say that? We're saying, God, insofar as I'm able to discern, insofar as, as I understand what you've revealed about yourself in your word, I think that this prayer is in your character. I think that this prayer is consistent with your love and with your might and with your will. In Jesus' name, I might be wrong. And if I am, Jesus, who is the mediator between man and God, will take my prayer and he'll fix it. He'll make it the prayer that I would have prayed if I, know what, if I knew what he knows. But, but God, to the, to the best of my understanding, to the best of the insight you've given me, I think this is who you are. I think I'm praying in a way that, that honors who you are. Verse 21, God answers. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. Remember, priests speak to God for man, the prophets speak to man for God. And, and notice, even before we get into the substance, notice the preface. Notice the introduction of God's response. We've been saying, man, Hezekiah is crushing it. He's praying really, really well. And there's one thing that we haven't called out yet. Notice that God begins his reply by saying, this is the prayer I'm answering. You prayed to me about Sennacherib. You prayed to me about the things that he's been saying. You prayed to me about how they're detrimental to, to what people know of me, what people believe about me in the world. This is the prayer I'm answering. He prayed in the basis of God's name. We just talked about that. He prayed in God's character, but he did something else also. He prayed specifically, didn't he? And because he prayed specifically, we see God giving a specific answer. There's a lesson there for our prayer life. Too often, we're content to say, God help. God move. God, I need you. That's not bad. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm not saying stop. Plenty of examples of scripture of people saying, I don't know what else to say, so I'm just going to say help. And I'm just going to throw myself at your feet. But there are other examples, and this is one, of people praying specific concrete prayers and obtaining specific concrete answers. Specific and explicit is different than prescriptive. Hezekiah is not saying, God, you better do this or else. God, do this because you need to do this. And after you've done this, you need to do that. He's not telling God how to be God. He's not dictating to the creator of the universe. But he's saying, God, as, as this is what I think you want to, to see. This is what I think you want to have happen. This is what I'm asking. And it's a really good way to pray. Because when God answers those specific prayers, man, does our faith explode, right? It's such a good practice to write down the, the, the specific concrete things that you're praying about. Write them down in your Bible. Write them down in a prayer journal. Keep a note on your phone. But, but keep a record. God, this is what I'm bringing before you. Write the date that you started praying about it. And then jot down, and this is when God answered, and this is how God answered. Because seeing in, your, in our own lives... The concrete evidence, the testimony that God is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. Man, that builds our faith. It makes it so much easier. We run so much quicker to pray to him the next time. And when he answers that time, it's so much easier to pray the time after that. And when someone comes to us and says, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what, what's going to happen next. We can look at them and we can say to them with faith and with confidence, put it before God. Because we, believe, we can look him in the eye. God will hear your prayer. God will answer your prayer because we've seen it happen ourselves. Some people, some people will, will take this and, and they'll go a step further and say, always, always and only have one thing that you're putting before God. Only put one question at a time before God, one specific question, because if, if you have two or three or six, you won't know which one he's answering. Yeah. I, I, get, I get the point. The point is, 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 is pray specific prayers and listen for specific answers. But if, 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 if your prayers are on, on two different topics, having to do with two different things, I, 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 I think you can tell the difference, is, is my point. I think if you're, ask, if you're praying a specific prayer and you're getting that specific answer, you'll know what it's an answer to. Because your, your, your prayer is, is narrowly focused. Not prescriptive, because we just said that's bad. Don't say, God, A, B, or C. But say, God, this is a really important issue. And this is why it's time sensitive. 
And this is why I, I, I think you care. God, what should I do? Back to our text. Hezekiah prays specifically. Verse 21, he gets a specific answer to a specific question. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. This is God talking to Hezekiah about Sennacherib. It's as if God is speaking to Sennacherib, but Hezekiah is, is getting the benefit of listening in on this, this conversation. And the idiom is, Sennacherib's like an arrogant bachelor, a pushy guy at a party trying to woo an innocent girl, Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's not having it. In fact, Jerusalem, God's daughter, is laughing at Sennacherib behind. Do you believe this guy? Hitting on me? Here? Verse 23. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. God continues. He says, okay, but enough about Jerusalem. Enough about my daughter. Let's talk about me. And let's talk about how you're disrespecting me. You know, God, God starts off, he sounds like dad who, who, you know, the boyfriend comes over to pick up his daughter and he kind of flicks a 45 caliber bullet at him and says, disrespect my daughter, the next one comes faster. <laughs> but, but, but then he changes the subject. And he says, let's, but, but let's not even talk about disrespecting my daughter because you're not going out with her. Let's talk about our relationship. You've been comparing me to other gods. You've been comparing me, the true and living God, to stuff that people make out of stone and wood. I think you're confused. Verse 24, by your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots I've come up to the height of the mountains. Sounds like Lucifer. To the limits of Lebanon. I'll cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I'll enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I've dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet, I've dried up all the brooks of defense. You're really quite impressed with yourself, aren't you, Sennacherib? But you seem to be under the impression you did all of that. You seem to think that your victories and conquests come from your military strength, that you're some kind of strategic genius. No, you've done it because I've allowed it. You've made it this far. You've conquered lands and peoples and kings and 45 fortified cities in Judah because I ordained it. We reminded ourselves of this last week, but I'll read it again. Isaiah 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoils, to take the prey. You're an instrument in my hands, God says. And that's all that you are. And that's all that you'll ever be. Verse 26, did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now you, I've brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. That's what I wanted. You did it because I asked you to do it. You did it because I willed it. Therefore their inhabitants had little power, verse 27, they were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetop and grain blighted before it's grown. You mowed them down because of me, not because of you, Sennacherib, because of me. Because I know you, Sennacherib, verse 28, God isn't done yet. I know your dwelling place, you're going out, you're coming in, in your rage against me. And because I know you, verse 29, because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. I know you, I've seen you, I've heard you, and that's why I'm going to conquer you. You're rubbing your hands in glee and delight at the, at the prospect of conquering Jerusalem. It's not going to turn out that, that way. The Assyrians were in the habit of putting hooks in people's noses and attach, excuse me, attaching them to long ropes and leading their captives back 
um, on, a, on a kind of a chain gang, roped to hooks in their nose. God is turning that around and he's saying, yeah, Assyria, I'm going to lead you by a hook in your nose and I'm going to lead you right back where you came from. Now remember, this is God, still God talking to Hezekiah. But he's saying to Hezekiah to encourage him by way of answer to his prayer. Yeah, this is what I think about Sennacherib. This is what I think about him. This is what I have to say to him. This is what I would say to him if he was standing in front of me. This is what I'm going to say to him soon enough. Not with my words, but with my actions. But verse 30, God's not done speaking to Hezekiah. He's got more to say by way of answer to Hezekiah's prayer. This shall be a sign to you. Oh, that's interesting. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. And the second year, what springs from the same? Also in the third year, sow and replant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. So, first of all, what is he saying? He's saying this year you're not going to get to sow because there's an army coming against you. And, and that's not really compatible with farming. Next year, same thing. Still no sowing. Some of the crops, you know, will just grow up of their own accord. Where you planted last year, it, it's not going to be like you planted, but you'll be able to, to reap a little bit. There'll be a little fruit. There'll be a little grain. The third year, though, it'll be back to business as usual. You can plant, you can reap, there'll be fruit, there'll be grain. It, it, you're gonna, it, it's everything will be as it always was. But see, that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is God says this is going to be a sign. A sign of what? I mean, it, it's going to happen. It's a prophecy. But a sign suggests a longer term. The sign, by saying it's a sign, God is saying, Isaiah is still my guy. Isaiah is a prophet. He's speaking for me, and I'm speaking through him, God. He, he doesn't want Hezekiah to just know this is what the next three years are going to bring. He's saying that. He's saying, I'm going to get you through this. It, it, it's going to be a scrape. It's, it, it's going to be lean for a while, but I'm going to get you through it. But when I get you through it, after I've gotten you through it, and you see that Isaiah was right, that he really was speaking for me, and I'm me, and I mean what I say and I say what I mean, then you'll believe here's what's going to happen next. This is going to be a sign. When the short-term fulfillment happens, you're going to trust the long-term. What's the long-term? Verse 31, the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do that. Well, that doesn't sound really long term. The remnant of Judah is going to escape the Assyrian onslaught and... Yeah, we're going to put down roots again and we're going to worship again. And... But notice, the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah, out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, those who escape from Mount Zion. That sounds a lot more like a long-term fulfillment, doesn't it? That sounds like the remnant of a future Israel that we've talked about very likely takes shelter outside of the walls of Jerusalem, very likely takes, takes shelter in the walled city of Petra. God is saying, hey, I'm going to deliver you from the Assyrian onslaught here in the 8th century before Christ. When I do that, and when it plays out exactly the way that I'm telling you, let that be as a sign the next time you're besieged by an evil empire. Believe that I will deliver that remnant that has fled from Jerusalem, short-term and long-term. And that remnant, that future remnant, will return to be rooted and grounded in the Lord and will again worship and will again make sacrifices, and again will, will let their praise and witness be lifted. A little nod at Antichrist there, surrounding Jerusalem, demanding their surrender, God sending a deliverer, because look at verse uh, 33. Therefore thus, so I'm, go back to verse 32. Out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not an army, not an ally, 
God will deliver them. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I'll defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Sennacherib Antichrist, not the first time we've noticed the parallel. Here's another one. You have, to, you, have to, you have to want it. But going back the way they came. To Sennacherib, Sennacherib, we know that that means going back to Assyria, going back to Nineveh. In what way does Antichrist go back the way he came? We don't even exactly know where he came from. He's going to come out of a revived Roman Empire. No, I think he's going to go back the way he came. What happens shortly before Antichrist comes against Jerusalem, he's either indwelt or powerfully influenced by Satan and is cast into the lake of fire, prepared for who? Satan and his angels. He sides with Satan against God. And when he loses, okay, go back the way you came. Go back the way of Satan. Go, you, you signed up with him, so you're forever eternally connected to him. For I'll defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And again, we've got a nod to a long-term fulfillment here. It's a reference to the Davidic covenant, obviously, 2 Samuel 7. God promises David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. Can't do that if Jerusalem is destroyed. Short-term, it's encouragement to Hezekiah. Long-term, it's a reminder that promise is still pending. Long-term, it's a promise that a descendant of David will yet return to sit on the throne because God keeps his promises. Let's wrap up. Verse 36, The angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. When people arose early in the morning, there were corpses, all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. There are interesting legends that have we can we can track down having to do with how the 185,000 are slain. We know that it happened. Scripture says so. Secular history says so. In the 5th century, Herodotus, the Greek historian, traveled throughout the Middle East compiling a history of the region, and he found uh, ample record of, of a siege against Jerusalem that was interrupted when Egypt opened a second front against the Assyrian army. But interesting, what, what uh, Herodotus came up with as he talked to Egyptian priests, the story that was handed down was that Herodotus, uh, was, was that Sennacherib's army was defeated by mice. And I should have I grabbed it um, from, from Herodotus. You can, you can track it down. Um, but the, the, the story that the priests told Herodotus was that the army was overrun by field mice who, who chewed the, bow, the, the strings of the bows, who chewed the ties of the armor, that, that, left the, that chewed the ties of the, the sword scabbards, that left them unable to fight and spread disease among them. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who, who I enjoy reading, um, I'm really enjoying his commentary on Isaiah, he, he goes so far as to say, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, completed before the time of Christ, and it's the translation that Jesus most, awfully, most often quoted from, there's an interesting addition in 1 Samuel chapter 6 that we don't read in our New King James. First, first Samuel 6, the Philistines are temporarily in possession of the Ark of the Covenant. They're moving it around. Wherever they stop, people break out in tumors, so they go to the next city, but it happens again. People break out in tumors. Tumors either boilers, boils or, or hemorrhoids. But in the Septuagint, it says that they were beset by tumors and mice, which might explain why First Samuel 6, 4 
the, the magicians among the Philistines say, here's what you need to do. You need to make a trespass offering. You need to appease God. You need to bring before him five golden tumors and five golden mice. I always wondered why the mice? If that's true, that would make sense of it. There are other possibilities as well, other legends as well. What we know for sure is that the cause of death, when, when, the birth when the death certificate was filled out, the cause of death was God. But the end is what gets me. The, 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 last, the last verse is the best part. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, that his son struck him down with the sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Asarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Do you see the parallel? God loves irony, and this is such a rich example. What was Sennacherib's whole argument? What was his whole premise? Your God is no different. Your God is not going to deliver you. Hezekiah went into the temple of his God and says, God, how about it? Sennacherib goes into the temple of his God and he struck down there by his own sons exactly the way that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob said that he would be. God waited 20 years for that to come together, but it happened exactly the way that God said it would. And that's where I want to end up tonight. We, we talked about the importance of going to God in prayer a couple different times because we said we saw Hezekiah do it, and we said, right on, man. And we talked about the importance of praying in God's character, and he does that. We talked about the importance of praying specific prayer, and he does that. But at the end of the chapter, he reminds us, reminds me at least, we also have to remember who we're praying to. And Hezekiah has it right. Verse 16, we're praying to God who made the world. God who took the greatest army in the world and bent them to do his bidding. And when they were finished doing what God had for them to do, destroyed them. Just dispensed with them with a thought. I mean, I sort of like the mice theory because it underscores just how helpless an army is against God. And, 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 and it reminds us how much time we don't spend trying to make sure that we're on the side of God. How much of our prayer time, which is, which is for all of us less than we wish that it were, but how much of the time that we do spend in prayer do we spend trying in, in one way or another to get God on our side? God, God will, you, will you come alongside me and help me do this thing? God, Will you, creator of the universe, inventor of people, will you help me? Shouldn't it be the other way around? God didn't create us to keep his distance from us. He's not a, a cosmic watchmaker who wound up the universe and then stepped back to watch it, to watch it work. No, this is, this is God who's intimately involved with humanity. He orchestrates the rise and fall of empires, the ascent and descent of kings. This is God who hears and answers the prayer of his people, his children. What are those prayers? I think a big takeaway from this chapter is that our prayers ought to be, God, what do you want to do? What are you trying to accomplish so that I can side up with you, work with you, work for you, and not be against you even by accident? So it's so easy to make assumptions about what's right in God's eyes. God, I'm trying to do these things over here. They're, they're for you. I'm serving you. I, I thought of this great thing to do for you. So God, will you bless it? Will you help me do it? I want to do it really well. What if it's the wrong thing? What if we intend it with all of the best intentions? That was Hezekiah. He's trying to save Jerusalem. He's trying to serve God and protect the city and, and defend the temple and, and by extension defend worship. Come on, God, you need to be on our side. 
Just, just convince those Egyptians to help us. Come on, God. You're, we're Team Judah. You're our sponsor. We've got Yahweh written on our T-shirts. But God's consistent message throughout Scripture and very much in his dealings here with, with Judah, no, you need to be on my side. Do we, do, we, do we really go before God with open hands and say, God, what is it to serve you? What is it to love you? What is it to honor you? I want to love my family. I think we all do. God loves my family more than I do. God, help, help me love my family? Wait a minute. That, that, that puts me in charge. That puts me in the driver's seat. That suggests that I know anything about anything. God, how do you want to love my family? And what's my piece of that? God, how, how do you want to bless Anne? How do you want to bless Michaela? What can, I, what can I do to help you? What do I need to do to stay out of your way? God, what does is, what is, what is loving my family look like? Before I get all kinds of preconceived notions and, and answers and options, God, you're good. You're mighty. You're love. Tell me. God, God, you love this church. You love the people who are this church, this fellowship, this family. Before I start thinking about, okay, I've got these ideas about what to teach and how to worship and what outreach should be and, and, and what discipleship should look like. God, we're your people called by your name. You have plans for us that you formulated before you made us. What does it look like to be on your side? How do we join with you to accomplish the plans that you have for us? Your Lord of hosts, your God of Israel, you're the one who dwells bet between the cherubim, your God alone, maker of heaven and earth. God, teach us to live. Teach us what work looks like. Teach us how to use our, our free time. Show us the relationships to invest in and how to invest in them. God has plans for every moment of our lives, every one of us. God made us, and he made us with, with plans, with purpose, for every moment, every aspect of our existence, every one of us. Let's not be late to the party like Hezekiah. Let's not run to God out of desperation, but out of anticipation. God, show me the way. And so we close tonight, Lord, with that prayer. And mindful of your promise, you want to do that. You went to the cross to tear down the barrier, the, the chasm that we opened between us so that you could lead us so much more personally and relationally through your spirit so you could indwell us and empower us and so that we could love you and serve you. See and understand your will. Perform your will. Obey your law. Love our neighbors. So with open hearts, Lord, with open hands, with open minds, Lead us in the way we should go. And we thank you for the privilege, the opportunity, the joy of being led by the one who also loves. <laughs>